0: Welcome back to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Laura Huey, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Western Ontario, a member of the College of New Scholars of the Royal Society of Canada, a senior research fellow with the US National Police Foundation, and the editor of Police Practice and Research, and the president of the Canadian Criminal Justice Research Alliance. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigations, which was prompted by the tragic deaths of members of Toronto's LGBTQ2S plus communities, and by deep concerns about how the Toronto Police Service conducted the investigations into their disappearances. Okay, so we're back with episode five, and today, like I said, we have Dr. Laura on. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Independent Civilian Review into Missing Persons Investigation. So, Laura, could you give us an intro on what that's about? Uh,
1: <laughs> I, 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 big sigh on my part because um, today's the day that the big uh, independent uh, report came out and I have very mixed feelings, to be honest with you. And so that's kind of the reason why I just, Expel that huge sigh of like, oh, I don't know if it's a sigh of hope or a sigh of despair. But what's going on is this: out of the MacArthur investigation uh, came a desire on the part of policymakers to, and uh, ostensibly, uh, legal community and other t- and and you know LGBTQ to is community and um, of course marginalized communities and so on to say hey like this is not cool we need to understand what's gone wrong here and um try to you know move forward in a way that stops um situations in which you know and this is this is you know it's statistically it's rare but when a case does not get resolved timely, satisfactorily, and so on, the consequences can be can be dire. And so what we've got is this this move on the part of all these different communities to say, hey, we need to do better. And about, I want to say, was it about a year and a half ago, I got contacted by Kent Roach, who was the um, director of research for this, for this inquiry. And he asked, whether or not I would be interested in uh, looking at the Canadian research on missing persons, and I'm like, sure, I'm happy to do that because there's none. <laughs> it's going to be the shortest report known to mankind, or human humankind, um, and so uh, and and you know i'm laughing but again it's a laughter of despair because for the past 10 years i have wanted to see something happen in this area it's one of those as as anybody who's been listening to lorna's podcast knows it is one of those areas that just does not generate a lot of interest from researchers for academics and so on so i'm like okay maybe this is our moment can try to get something going here and and put a spotlight on the lack of research that Canada produces in this area.
0: You brought up that these marginalized and vulnerable communities that are disproportionately impacted by missingness are not often looked at. And I want to point out that For research more generally, looking at those minorities, looking at the outliers, often reveal much more about the topic than looking at the majority. And so this kind of review is like a first look into that outlier group or those outlier groups that are, like I said, disproportionately impacted. You know, you also talked about the Bruce MacArthur case, and that's really prolific. But just for people that don't know what that's about, could you give us a little overview on that?
1: Well, essentially, and, you know, it's... I, I'm dating myself a little bit um, here. To understand Bruce MacArthur, you have to go back even further into cases like Robert Picton, because this is a pattern. And I think it's important to understand that. And it's a pattern of people falling through the cracks. And when I say the cracks, I'm talking about social safety networks, through um, investigational cracks, through all sorts of different um, cracks in which. Marginalized, vulnerable, high risk people go missing. Their cases are not reported, not reported in a timely fashion or are reported, but not acted upon in a timely and or thorough way. And we see that like my career is, it's funny, I was, I was kind of um, re- revisiting some of my career highlights as I was reading the report uh, this morning. And my career starts in the 1990s when Robert Pickton was, um, was active murdering women in Vancouver's downtown east side, And it was exactly the same scenario as what we saw in the MacArthur case. You've got vulnerable people just disappearing. The community knows something's going on. And at different points in time, different members of the community, family members and so on reach out to the police but for a variety of different reasons, there's difficulties in piecing together the fact that this is actually a serial case. And it's, can I, you know, sorry, Lauren, I'm like, this is the problem when you ask me a question because I will go off in 15 different tangents. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> way back, way back in 1952, kids, I actually taught a course on uh, criminal profiling at the Justice Institute of BC. No, it wasn't at J- J-I-B-C. Was it BCIT? This is how old I am. I'm starting to get my, I'm starting to get my stories confused. <laughs> I was at BCIT. And um, I, ran an ex- I ran an experiment with these people that would come and take my class, some of whom were police officers, some of whom were people that were interested in getting into policing or who were interested in uh, getting into crime scene work and so on. And I used to run this um, experiment in which I gave them case fact patterns. And what I asked them to do was to tell me whether or not these cases were linked or were not. In other words, can you identify a serial case or not? And guess what? Disproportionately, when given these fact patterns, students did not recognize the cases were linked. By the way, kids, that's an entire area of research that we desperately need work on. So if you are a master's student, PhD student in criminology looking for a topic, this is a great one, especially if you come from a psych background. Why do we not see things as being linked when they are? But here's where I'm going. With Picton, what you have was, um, you had a couple of police officers on the front lines, and I can name names because I know who was there. Um, who were saying, you know, we think we have a serial killer. And then there were other people that were saying, no, 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 these cases aren't matched because they couldn't find those links. And so a lot of the same problems that you see in Picton repeat. And we see them not just in uh, the Picton case and the MacArthur case. We also see them in the Bernardo case, which was another Failure of linkage, understanding that serial rapists and serial murders can be the same individual. Then we move ahead to MacArthur, and it's, it's the same type of conditions as Picton, vulnerable, marginalized community. Um, the community members and family members were aware that something was going on, you know, report, don't report, whispers in the community, people taking their own steps to try and locate these individuals and the police not recognizing that, wow, these disappearances are themselves linked. And again, tons and tons of work can be done on why people fail to understand linkages. But one of the things that we know from research, and this is actually from research that Lorna and I do, more Lorna than me, but I'm gonna take credit with the hell, is we've started to look at volume. And one of the reasons why we, I I hypothesize that one of the reasons why we fail to see linkages in some cases, like in my going back to my students at BCIT is because we watch too much crime shows and we tend to um, not see things in ways that are interconnected because we try to be like, uh, like, I don't know, I don't watch any of these crime shows, but we try to be some big detective and we overanalyze things and therefore miss the obvious. The flip side of that is when you work with missing persons cases and you see the overall volume, what happens is that you don't go back to your use of the term outlier. What what happens is we focus oftentimes too much on the norm. And the norm is that over 95% of cases will be resolved the individual being found alive and well. Maybe not happy about being found, but being found alive and well. So we don't pay enough attention to the outliers, and we don't understand how to identify those outliers and to see when outliers can potentially be linked in terms of serial cases. There you go. Brought that right back. You did. And it's a great
0: tie-in because my next question was going to be what did you find in your report? Because I, kn- I know that you were mapping some of the key evidence, or I guess lack of evidence, about missing persons in Canada. Were you looking at the outliers? What themes did you pull out?
1: Well, uh, not much to pull out. So what we found was, uh, I found 16 pieces of published research. One of the things that, um, I felt was really important in terms of doing this work was to look at peer-reviewed published research, which we can knock that um, for a variety of different reasons, but it's still typically the best evidence that we have available in terms of independence, in terms of rigor, and so on. I looked at all the Canadian research that had been published. I identified 16 papers. Now, let's be clear about that. Let's take a 20-year period. 20 years since Picton. 16 papers, that's ridiculous. Since then we've also and I, I, I didn't mention the Highway of Tears case, which is another big case. Um, again, I found, uh, I think it was one or two papers that just focused on that and that one of the papers was about billboards that police officers had put up to warn uh, Indigenous women not to hitchhike. So I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of, you know, an important thing, but it wasn't an evaluation about whether or not it worked, it was just a, a, like an analysis of the wording. So in terms of the 16, not only do we not have a strong evidence base in any particular topic, but there's no evaluation of, of investigative techniques, there's no evaluation of different programs, there's no look at different prevention, forms of prevention, there's nothing. Most of the research that has been done on missing persons here in Canada up until dun, 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 our hostess with the most ass here began uh, crunching out a ton of work, most of it has been very, very um, poor quality. And by that I'm talking about in terms of methodological rigor, and answering the question, what works? So then I want to draw back to, so you found
0: basically no evidence. It's kind of garbage what's out there. So we can't use any of that. Is that why you started this podcast with a big sigh? Did that reflect in the conversation today, the press conference? (laughs) I'm guessing, yeah. All right, talk about it. Let's hear it. (laughs) Okay,
1: I have a big sigh for two reasons. So anybody that actually read the report and in fact, anybody that knows me knows that I am, have a small tendency, very big tendency to shoot from the hip. I get really annoyed. In fact, annoyance is what motivates me. It motivates me more than a greed, even, and greed's up there too. Let's just be clear. Um, why that's important is when I was asked to do this work, I was annoyed beyond belief at how terrible the research was in Canada and I was being asked to evaluate and assess the contents of this research to help this inquiry make policy recommendations. And uh, there, I felt pressured to do that. And essentially what I, you know, that doesn't work for me, right? <laughs> I'm still just gonna tell you how it is. And how it is, is we do not have sufficient evidence for me to comfortably make any policy recommendations at all. And what I concluded the report by saying is the only recommendation I have is y'all need to get off your asses, stop funding these stupid inquiries. Yes, I said that, please bleep that out. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) But uh, we need to stop having the same inquiries that say the same damn thing over and over and over again. Like there's four of them, I can count since 1999, major inquiries, and guess what? Nothing has changed. Take the money that you spend doing those activities, policy makers, and invest it in actual high quality rigorous research on what works. Not just what works in terms of answering the call, but in investigation, in search and rescue, in um, every aspect especially prevention, which is something that gets zero attention. That's where, that's why I have a big sigh. I have another reason for the big sigh, but we can get into that later.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I was obviously on the press conference with you. Uh, You signed out a little bit earlier than me. So I stayed for the media questions where the media essentially in thousands of different ways poked and prodded at how this is going to be actionable and how this is going to be, how like how the police and the board are going to be held accountable to that and be transparent. And the overarching theme was that the public needs to hold the police accountable and need to make sure that the police are transparent. And how the hell are they going to do that? Thank you. Like like you brought up, we have four, I think there's five reviews that I can think of since early 2000s. They've all made similar recommendations. And a lot of them come from the families of the missing who have been screaming into the void for decades now, trying to get the police to budge and move from being reactive to more proactive and preventative. Um, and so I found, I found that being that was like a really critical moment where I actually signed off, off after that comment. <laughs> so they lost me from it. But it goes back to the same issue that you're talking about, which is that these reviews and inquiries come up with recommendations that are not actionable, not sustainable and not um not necessarily able to be implemented so was there any key points in the conversation with judge epstein and and mark slander that you wanted to pull out that you can (laughs)
1: Whatever,
0: (laughs) mark let's call him mark um yeah was there anything that you wanted to pull out that like really irked you because that was mine that was definitely the moment that i said nope i'm done
1: yeah i i i tuned out because i just felt like this is going to be I, I actually texted a friend of mine who's a police officer and said I predict that in 10 years I'll be doing another report oh my god not. <laughs> I want to make a couple points about this first of all um I I'm a huge proponent as you know of evidence-based policing I think that there are some absolutely fantastic police officers who have cutting-edge ideas For innovative programs and practices that we could be developing and testing to see whether or not they work. So, I don't, I wanna be really clear that I don't think it, I I don't like this polarized sort of thing of like, you know, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. When I know that there's frontline officers and and officers in the investigation units that, that really care and are just as frustrated as we are. That said, they're going to continue to be just as frustrated because I, I do not have any. There's that sigh again. (laughs) I I do not have any um, faith that this is anything's going to happen. The only way in which this can happen. Anything can happen is if the provincial government in conjunction with the federal government comes up with some type of a, you know they use the term center of excellence and I and quietly I said to you well I don't think they really understand what that entails Um, but there needs to be some type of a sustained funding for not just research but actionable research that not just creates it's not just a bunch of academics on the outside doing research on police but it's a joint partnership in which police themselves also build the internal capacity for doing critical cutting edge research themselves. But why? I know people are rolling their eyes at me saying this, but here's the thing. I started out six, seven years ago, interested in police reform. And the only way to affect meaningful police reform is to get change that from within. And the best way to do that, I believe, is to create a culture, uh, an environment, a culture of learning in which people become critical thinkers about not just their practices, but the information they consume, how they create it, how they use it, and so on. And uh, we've seen little bits and pieces of this playing out in police services in Canada and in the UK. And when it happens, it's fantastic because what happens is you get a leadership that says okay what does the evidence say as a starting point to developing a program policy or practice but to actually get that to happen here requires sustained funding from the, and commitment from the provinces and from the federal government and i don't see this happening
0: yeah so for the listeners that don't know about Laura and I we both work together for the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing uh Laura was the executive director and myself the director of operations and so we have like combined a number of years working in evidence-based policing and with police officers and police organizations and so that's the lens that we both come from and it's interesting that you bring up this um empowerment for the police because the Judge Epstein and Mark, we'll call him Mark, because I can't say his last name. <laughs> 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 their recommendation for partnerships stopped at community organizations. It did not include researchers or scholars in this field. Most of us have been doing this for years, trying to move change from from within and out on the outside, engaging in partnerships quietly in the background, and so. Hearing that, I got on Twitter and was devastated because it feels like a thankless task from this side and I'm okay with not getting recognition, but what I want is for there to be police out there that recognize that uh, research partnerships are not scary. And so I'm wondering, Laura, if you wanna talk on that a little bit and for any police that are listening, um, but heard that report and didn't hear that researchers are available for partnerships. um, That's my two cents, but Laura, did you wanna say anything about that?
1: absolutely here's one of the biggest misconceptions and it was it's funny you bring this up because you know after after the the media thing i went out to my garden and started pulling weeds because i felt like i needed to do something productive <laughs> i'm like those poor weeds got massacred out there um, <laughs> and i was thinking about all of this um and i'm thinking about this idea of change you know reform change whatever you want to call it and um I was very skeptical about whether or not anything long-term would happen for a variety of reasons including the fact that police themselves are often they're not just skeptical of working with community groups unless of course it's a situation which you know and I I don't want to say all police again I hate that it's like saying all academics but some police services have a history of not working well in the sandbox with others, unless they are the big kid in the box. And that's not just for community groups. So I know community groups feel that oftentimes, you're not alone. That's also the case for academics as well. And the reality of it is, is that if you really wanna affect long-term change, it's important that you have The tools that are necessary to do that, and the tools have to be a critical thinking lens, a way of thinking about and assessing what is the best evidence at this time for making a decision, as well as, of course, bringing in the community input, because we, the community has to be present to talk about impacts, how how resource shifts affect them, and so on, right? Um, But... The, this mistake or this uh, misconception that, that when I make those arguments, the misconception is this, that I'm trying to line myself up for some type of a consulting gig or that I need access to data so I can further my career and become some great, you know, like all the, I've, I've heard, I've had people say things like this. And it, and I understand why. There's a natural cynicism that comes from policing, um, from multiple, you know, from dealing with politicians, from dealing, you know, on the street, and so on, so forth. Everybody always wants something. So, what do you want? The reality is, and I think Lorna would agree with me. um, We're not most academics are not typically getting super wealthy. Uh, Doing free research for police services. Right? No, no, reduction. I'm not not about to get on my super yacht uh, down here in the south of France uh, from all the consulting fees. In fact, I rarely, rarely ever take consulting fees. Um, It has to be something pretty extra special. And most of us do this work because we actually feel very passionate about it. I I mentioned earlier, I've been wanting to push the envelope on missing persons for 10 years. I I couldn't do it. And thank God Lorna stepped up and and did it. I couldn't do it because I'm being pulled in 85 million different other directions, which again, like is a reality. Most of the police, most of the policing researchers in Canada do not have tons of free time to take on big projects for police services. Mm -hmm. And so if we do it has to be something we actually really care about. Mm -hmm.
0: It's also like chronically underfunded, like especially relevant to missing persons, but policing research in Canada is also garbage, as we know from a lot of the work that you've done, Laura, yourself. But, and that's the whole comment about getting rich and there's some type of money incentive. It just isn't there. I mean, I know, Laura, you worked with CANSA voluntarily for six years and myself, I did it for for three and a half. conducting tons of free research while consultants were out there um, literally lining their pockets with money, developing new models or regurgitating more models as more accurate for police. Um, And they attached that fee for it and police, you know, sucked that up because they thought it was better or more because it was not free, but we did it for free. And we've had tons of successful partnerships with police across Canada. And so for any police that are listening that feel a little bit defeated by this uh, independent civilian review and the lack of men- mention of researchers or all the work that you've been doing, definitely reach out to us. You know, We're always plugged into this work and we're always willing to collaborate and we will happily do it for absolutely no cost because we're very passionate about this stuff.
1: 100%, I mean, I know some, I'm not gonna name any names, but I can think of several names right off the top of my head. Um, uh, there's some very fantastic, passionate, dedicated, committed police officers that really care I really wanna see change in this area. They're not gonna get it, I don't believe from this report. I don't see, especially right now because of the the economic situation with the global pandemic and yada yada. um, I just don't see any government stepping up to pour to actually invest in um, any type of a, a knowledge production, Unit center whatever to create the research that's necessary to answer basic questions. You know, I what I predict is the usual, which is oh, we'll just look and see what the UK is doing every goddamn
0: time, and it is amazing what the UK have done. But I've st- spoke about it extensively on this podcast in my work with people like yourself Laura that you know there's different contexts in the UK operating the police systems are different the economic systems are different social systems we face different issues here I mean Indigenous uh, missing missing persons uh, is not a huge issue in the UK in fact I would say that there's no research or no conversations on it in the UK so why are we applying work that's not maybe relevant but even if there's not a centre developed which we do need and I do absolutely agree with at least the Missing Persons Research Hub exists. I'll put it out there that I'm trying to do that work. And everyone that's plugged into the hub is trying to do the work and push that change. So there is that element of it. And that's a key positive takeaway from all this is that anyone that's listening to this is already plugged into a great resource that's out there for this sole this reason um, and to deal with these frustrations. Um, but that's a positive note. And I wanted to ask that question, Laura. Did you find anything positive about the review? Did you find anything positive about the press conference? <laughs> i know what you're like i know you're gonna say no but i'm asking
1: anyway okay so what i found what i what i liked there, there was a few things that i had put of course i'm a narcissist there's a few things in the report my report that somehow creeped into the the big report so i was like i like that of course. Um, But one of the things that I have been advocating for again, I've been advocating for this for 20 years, and still nobody takes me up on it, is a little something called remote reporting, also known as distance reporting or third party reporting. And um, it comes out of Scotland. And essentially what it is, is police officers working closely with service providers, in communities especially marginalized communities where those service providers often hear rumblings about things that are going on that might not come to the attention of the police in a formal way through a through a formal report it's just good intelligence so if somebody's disappeared and then somebody else like oh you know this guy disappeared and oh then this guy over here you know that you know people are concerned about this It's good for police to know that, especially um, it helps to build that trust. The local community gets to know their police officer through somebody they trust. And then that person can be a conduit for formal or informal report. So it can go either way. I really love this sort of approach. And the irony of this, yeah, I'm gonna throw somebody under the bus right now. Guess what kids? I actually studied remote reporting in uh, Toronto, the possibility of implementing a remote reporting scheme in Toronto for homeless citizens who are experiencing some type of victimization. I studied this, I think we had a report out, um, Marianne Kiroet and I in 2007. So in 2007, I was already trying to convince the Toronto Police Service to do a third party reporting program. And here we are 2021,
0: it's a yeah. new recommendation for a different issue, but related to a major social problem, or several social problems. So it's just repeating itself in a different fashion. And
1: so what I said to what I said to Lorna on the phone call after after I killed massacred my weeds, is I, um, I said, mark my words, what the usual suspects, our usual consulting friends will take my take my work, give it a new name, repackage it and sell it to the Toronto Police Service for $60,000 of training or whatever the going rate is. And this kids is why I do not have a condo in in Boca Raton right now. You're doing it the hard way. You know, for free.
0: I also wanted to draw your, like, up another point that they brought up, and I'm bringing it up in this podcast because you and I have talked about it extensively in personal conversations, but I want to put it on the table. Um, Judge Epstein really emphasized taking away some of police responsibility for missing persons and putting it back on social services or social agencies was the language they used and other community organizations. What What's are the reasons? Yeah. And there was this, the notion of civilians getting further involved in missing persons work.
1: What does that mean? I mean we're going to go out and do like a local community neighborhood community groups will do patrols.
0: That it wasn't specified, and that's what is partially an issue. But no, wasn't specified. Basically, removing some power from the police to put back or onto uh, social agencies and civilian resources.
1: So one way they could do that, and I've talked about this before in, in relation to mental health, Lorna and I just did a report with, um, with a couple of our colleagues on, um, on policing and mental health calls for service. And one of the points that we made was, um, and rather pointedly, in fact, so pointedly that it will never come out in a, in a Globe and Mail opinion piece. But what we pointedly said was a lot of the issues around mental health calls for service involve social service organizations that don't want to deal with their own clientele. And guess what? We have the same problem when it comes to missing persons. Lauren and I did a uh, did a paper. I guess it came out last year on women. I think was it just women or was it women and men go missing from shelters? It was women and men. Thank you. We do so much; it's great. <laughs> um, but what we did was we looked at call uh, calls for service from shelters, and also did we look at kids or just adults?
0: We split it by age, so we split it with children and adults, looking separately at the locations that they went missing from, with splitting them by the top five locations and of course it well, came that out was
1: one paper we did another one as well which involved people women that went missing from homeless shelters oh that was it the ma- i know see we've done too much <laughs> uh, but the fact was what we did the again the overwhelming majority of cases were resolved uh, no problem the person was alive and well they just didn't go back in time for curfew that's what it was called something about curfew right
0: yeah descriptive analysis of homeless missing persons cases That's the one.
1: And it was basically did not arrive in time for curfew. So when we go back to what I said earlier about the volume of calls and why police get so jaded, not all police, but some police officers get a bit jaded about these calls, is literally, I had a police officer tell me, as the fax machine starts firing up about 6 p.m. or whenever, when the curfew is not, uh, when curfew hits and people haven't met it, so then the social service agencies immediately start reporting these people as missing. They did not arrive in time for curfew. And so then you have to go through all those cases to figure out. Now, what we've tried to do and some, we've tried to run experiments in which we um, get them to come up with some alternative mechanism that doesn't involve reporting to police. And those experiments have kind of died for various reasons, and one of the reasons is ask you with provincial regulations. People are so afraid to. Um, people are so afraid to. Uh, let's call it. Yeah, they, they want to cover their ass. It's if somebody doesn't show up in time for curfew, and it turns out that maybe something did happen to them. If I call it into the police, then at least I've done something. At the flip side of that, though, is they contribute to such a massive volume of calls that honestly if the police were to follow up and track through and do a proper full investigation of every single case in a night we would have to fund much more police services than what we currently want to fund never mind hashtag defund it would be hashtag fund up (laughs) it's a good slogan but you know that's the key point the key point is that
0: that recommendation to me seemed really out of touch with reality and what, what's actually happening is there's an offloading of responsibilities onto the police and that's existing because of liability issues and resourcing issues for social services. So then that, there's that like, what it's, what it's called is that mission creep. And so it goes back to the same issues but you're just perpetuating it in different social services instead of it being policing, it's gonna be um, group homes responsibility or a hospital's responsibility, but it's really just not addressing- Until what- somebody goes missing yeah actually missing not just not like late for curfew Yeah. Um, until you know we need to switch that conversation we need to stop focusing on response we need to start focusing on prevention it's not about who's responding to what and where and how and why we can't even have that conversation because we have to we really have to switch it to get it under wraps and start talking about prevention so I'm going to ask that question to you about what, what prevention could look like. And then I'm going to ask you, you know, any other reflections you want to add and then we'll wrap it up. But yeah. What does prevention look like if we were to switch that narrative to you?
1: Well, prevention has to be, first of all, targeted toward like, I'm not a one size fits all right. I'm going to use a girly analogy. It's like going into the banana Republic where all those people, all those women apparently like are tall very tall and skinny <laughs> and then those people have no hips no no nothing right so i'm like i go in and i put it on and i'm like, I'm like oh, this doesn't fit this is not one size fits all you have to tailor things for specific groups and specific people and and the risk factors the um are going to be very different they're going to be not just different by demographic group, but also by individuals and so on. Right. For example, we did a study, Lorna and I, um, where we looked at people who stormed, who went, were reported missing because they stormed off.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. They got, they were so, they were in a fight with uh, somebody at home and they were so overwhelmed they couldn't cope and they stormed off. Well, that is going to require a very different uh, prevention strategy than a kid that doesn't show up for curfew, or at, right? Or or um, a homeless citizen who doesn't show up in time for a shelter curfew versus somebody that is, um, by the way, we I've, I've seen this in the data, the person that's at the no-tell motel and does not want to be found, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So coming up with different prevention strategies has to be very specifically targeted and tailored and tested. And then once we have an idea whether or not something works, fantastic, then we can replicate, which by the way, never happens in policing. Nope. We replicate, they replicate like rabbits.
0: <laughs> i think there's such an absence of replication that if i were to see a replication study i wouldn't know what to do with it <laughs> This is
1: it. they replicate they don't replicate the study they just replicate the program like like little rabbits but mm-hmm. i digress but in terms of prevention one of my favorites um studies was done by my friend roger pegram in the uk it's you know i'm gonna say that you know exactly where i'm what i'm gonna say it's called pizza netflix night mm-hmm so, what he did was he went, he ran a, a randomized control trial in which he went, um, they went to a couple of different um, group homes for young people. First of all, we know from the data that we've analyzed, certainly, and other studies suggest this, there's no particular t- time or period in the week at which kids are more likely to abscond or be reported missing from a group home. Mm-hmm. But so they just arbitrarily picked a night. I think it was a Thursday night. So Thursday night police officers showed up and they made a big production, they got Netflix, they had pizza, you know, the cop hung out with them, they got to know the cop and, all, and as a consequence, sometimes it would tell them things, you know, the concerns or worries that they had. So it built up a trust relationship. And guess what? That was the one night a week that they had fewer kids that were reported missing. Speaking of replicating, if you want to replicate like a rabbit, replicate that study here in Canada
0: it would be a good POP project, problem oriented policing project, or just something for a student. So again, Laura and I are signing another topic to <laughs> those that are listening. There's another great research topic. Um, and if anyone's interested in getting that go and reach out to us, cause we have some connects, but look at, you know, getting an officer out there and having pizza from Little Caesars that costs five bucks and do that once a week and see what happens. You know, if that's that's a preventative piece, um, for a different area that policing responds to, maybe oh, it would be applicable.
1: 100%. I'm telling you right now, I will award the Nobel Peace Prize to whoever comes up with a really good uh, evaluation study of something where one of the big ones that we keep seeing over and over again, people who have abscond from mental health and uh, facilities and hospitals. Yeah, that's a big one. It's a huge one. And it also intersects with the whole policing mental health issue. You know, people want to defund the police in missing persons. They want to defund the police in relation to mental health. Well, guess what? Those, they intersect. And a lot of those calls, again, are CYA calls. Um, And so can we come up with some studies and prevention-oriented work that we can evaluate to see what we can do to reduce that number as well? Well, maybe I'll rise
0: to that challenge, Laura, and then you can award me a Nobel Prize Nobel (laughs) Peace Prize. Nobel Peace Oh, geez. Anyways, let's let's wrap this up (laughs) because clearly I need a break. But um, are there any other reflections from this independent civilian review? I mean, I have a lot I can say on it. We're not going to tackle it all today. We'll talk about it another time. But anything like in terms of key takeaways or calls for action or final thoughts that you want to add so that our listenership can get plugged into it?
1: I really, really, really feel... A sense of despair (laughs) like honestly I don't know I, I think I'm I'm becoming old and cynical myself because I've been through this as you know so many times with these inquiries and reports and you know yada yada and um I'm I would not be at all surprised to see uh, big, there'll be a big announcement coming. You know, we're gonna, we have this new, it's gonna be the modernization of missing persons. It's gonna be, there's gonna be a, a glossy report with really, you know, nice pictures in it and, you know, police officers hu- hugging people and it'll be, just, it'll be wonderful. It'll be, you know, big media announcement and yada yada. And then I uh, will be writing the same damn version of this report 10 years from now that's what i that's what that's where i'm at with this
0: i mean it already happened they gave us a global uh model that's revolutionizing missing person investigations based off of no research no input from the community of researchers aside from your report and a handful of others that were just yeah yeah same issues repeating themselves in different reports right and didn't include us in the conversation in terms of needed for partnerships so we're already pushed out so there's already a model a new age model for missing persons according to this review so it's happening
1: right yeah and there'll be a response like i said the response will be the same Mm -hmm. like the the response will be more the same And then we'll still be struggling. But the good news is, and I will take all credit for this. The good news that I will take credit for is that there are a few people, mainly Lorna Ferguson, who care enough to actually try to do something about this, try to generate that research. And it's not just Lorna. Again, I don't want to name names and throw any of my police colleagues under the bus inadvertently but there are some police officers that are really like I said really dedicated to making a difference and want this research and they want to work on this research they want to be you know they want things to change and so um that's the little tiny seed of hope that I have that at least 10 years from now when I write that report there will be more than 16 studies For me to
0: take a look at. I love that and that is a great place for us to end so (laughs) with that in mind with that positive note that Laura is leaving us with take it with you for anyone that's listening that feels a little bit of despair like Laura and I feel today um, fear not if you're plugged into the hub and you're plugged into researchers and the community that we're involved with there's definitely hope for the future and we will continue to advocate for change um, through partnerships although you know, it's not necessarily in reviews that that should be what's happening. So thank you, Laura, for joining us. I really appreciate you sharing some reflections on today's press conference and um, having a really honest chat with me. I'm sure a lot of people appreciate it as well. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Missing Persons Research Hub podcast. Until next time.